So I like the way the universe always conspires um, to support whatever's happening. I'm giving a th- the theme today is investigation, and somebody sent me an email with a quote from Agnes DeMille, whoever that is, saying, Living is a form of not being sure, not knowing what next or how. The moment you know how, you begin to die a little. The artist never entirely knows. We guess. We may be wrong, but we take leap after leap in the dark. So I thought that was rather fitting. I taught the family day on Sunday, which I've never done before, uh, which for those of you who don't know, it's a program Spirit offers where families, parents, and children can come together to practice. It's really quite a delightful day. Uh, And I encourage all of you who haven't been, whether you're a parent or still a child or want to hang out with the kids, uh, it's quite delightful. And I was also exploring this theme of inquiry and investigation. Of course, we had a lot of five-year-old experts on the topic of curiosity and interest and investigation because they haven't lost that sense of wonder at the universe and that sense of not knowing and interest and the hundred why questions, which I so love. There, Betsy Rose was reminding me of all the different why questions her daughter would ask her. And, Mommy, why, have, why don't we have six legs like spiders? And why are pigs pink? And where does the sun go at night? And who made the stars? And all those wonderful uh, mysteries that we can kind of have a rational answer for. And yet it doesn't quite do it, does it? We have the answer, well, pigs are pink because of the pigment in the skin. And, but it still doesn't really explain the mystery of why pigs are pink. <laughs> Somebody gave me this, um, this email that a first grade teacher was giving her children some a test about proverbs and she would give the first part of the proverb and then ask the children to fill in the rest. And uh, and from this place of not knowing, the answers are quite interesting. So the answer to the quote, better to be safe than sorry, would be, was, she, 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 had the, she had the proverb, better, better to be safe than punch a fifth grader. This is a first grade kids talking. Strike wilder dot, 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 the bug is close. <laughs> Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. <laughs> Love all, trust me. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the pigs. <laughs> Isn't that great? A penny saved is not much. <laughs> Very smart. <laughs> Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. <laughs> if at first you don't succeed, get new batteries. <laughs> this is interesting in our commercial world. You get out of something what you see pictured on the box. <laughs> and when the blind leadeth the blind, 
get out of the way. <laughs> this is a quote from T.S. Eliot. We shall never cease from our exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I think it's a wonderful summary of kind of what we do here in our practice. We never cease from exploring, we never cease from looking, and at the end of all of our exploring, we will be to arrive where we started and to see this experience, this place, this body, this world, as if for the very first time. So the theme of investigation uh, is something that I, I'm a topic quite close to my heart. I, I, for me, it's one of the fundamental aspects of our practice. Uh, the Buddha talked about investigation when he was talking about the factors of enlightenment, which are factors that help awaken us towards enlightenment, and also he talked about as the natural expression of the awakened mind of those seven factors, which include mindfulness and equanimity and joy and energy and whatnot. He said investigation was the most important factor of, en- of, of enlightenment. And in a way, what the Buddha did in his time was really explore this factor of investigation. He lived in a, in a culture that was more devotional in nature, more ritualistic. Um, and he developed uh, this practice of satipatthana, of mindfulness, of development of mindfulness, uh, systematic exploration of our mind-body process. He kind of developed that uh, uniquely from his own experience. That, that moment-to-moment exploration was what allowed him to wake up and what allows us to wake up in the way that he's uh, explained it. So when the Buddha talks about the path being the path of suffering and the end of suffering, it's really uh, an invitation to us to ask, well, what are the causes of suffering? Where, where is it that I suffer? How can I inquire into and understand and investigate where I suffer? And what are the causes of happiness? How can I explore and understand the causes of happiness? That's really the essence of the path. St. Thomas in the Gnostic Gospels said, If you bring forth what is inside you, what you bring forth will save you. If you don't bring forth what is inside you, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. Mm. So it's again, it's the same thing. Do we understand that which is inside us? That being the seed for either our awakening or our destruction. So I see Vipassana practice really as um, the twin aspects of mindfulness and investigation. For me, the two are almost synonymous, that uh, the cultivation of a mindful presence is what allows us, is one of the things that allows us to um, uh, be with what is, and when we can be with what is, we can explore what is. We can look deeply into the truth of what is. So without, without um, 
with only having one of those qualities, mindfulness investigation, it's somewhat imbalanced. We need the mindfulness to sustain the presence, and we need the inquiry to really uh, focus and sustain that inquiry, that, that understanding. Investigation is often misunderstood in our culture, as is meditation. We generally can't separate investigation or inquiry from a sort of a mentally driven cognitive inquiry, thinking basically. Um, And the way I understand inquiry is much more experiential than that. That the inquiry is, um, it can begin from a question, but for that to really take root, um, we need to include the whole of our experience, particularly an awareness of the body as we're inquiring. To begin inquiry, there's several things that I think are important. One is this aspect of curiosity, of willingness to be open to not know what's happening, to not know the truth of what is. To actually be willing to explore and hang out in that somewhat uncertain, uh, somewhat uncomfortable place. There needs to be a willingness or a cultivation of acceptance. If we can't accept our experience, if we can't accept something, we're in some way pushing it away. If we're pushing it away, how can we explore and look into it? So again, another aspect of mindfulness is this quality of acceptance, of embracing what is. When we can embrace what is, we can actually look a little deeper. We also have to have the quality of uh, not having an agenda about what's happening. We can't really have an open-ended inquiry if we have a fixed idea of where we're going. We actually have to let go of the result, let go of uh, knowing where we're going, but actually just to allow the inquiry to take us where it takes us. There's many different types of inquiry in the Buddhist tradition. Um, in the Zen tradition, they've developed this somewhat systematically. Um, in the Rinzai school, there's a whole series of koan study uh, that people do as a way of inquiring into the nature of the truth, into the nature of the self, into the nature of reality. In the Korean tradition, they've reduced uh, one school in the Tibetan tradition reduced um, this koan study to one koan, and the koan is emar ko, as I believe, which translates as, what is this? What is this? So whenever anything arises in your experience, the question is, what is this? Stephen Batchelor studied with, uh, um, he was a great scholar and Buddhist writer, and he lived with Master Kusan in Korea for three years, and he used to tell me about the times he would uh, think he knew what it was. So he would run to his master and say, oh, I, I know what it is. I know what this is. And of course the master would go, no, 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 no. Go away. Go back to your hut. Meditate for a bit longer. And seven months down the road, he would, oh, this is it. And he'd go down to the hut to his master and no, 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 no. Go back, meditate some more. True Zen style. Because as soon as we 
think this is it, as soon as we define it as something, we've already placed a limit on it in some way. So we can, we can bring that, that spirit of that, in, that koan into our practice. When anything is arising in our experience, it could be a sound, a thought, uh, an opening, some insight, some body sensation, whatever it is, a sense of self. And we can ask, what is this? What is this? What is this experience right now? Can I know this experience? When we look in that way, um, things start to become a little more mysterious. Because when we realize we can't actually define anything truly, can we really define, can we, you know, I ring this bell. What is this? What is this sound? Can our concepts really define what that sound is? If I asked everybody in the room, we'd have a different, probably each have a different sense of what that sound is and how to define it. But does it get anywhere near the actual experience of sound? The experience of bell? In the Hindu Advaita tradition, which I've studied in, many uh, teachers here at Spirit Rock have studied in, the fundamental inquiry is, who am I? Which really is the fundamental inquiry of most spiritual traditions, except it's not necessarily labeled like that. (coughs) But really our uh, inquiry in Buddhist practice is, who are we? What is the nature of the self? Maybe we'll do some. We'll, I'm going to do some exercises somewhere, some point through this talk. Uh, maybe that will be one of the exercises, exploring who we are. We can come up with a long list of who we are. Well, I'm Mark, and I'm English, and I'm a man, and I'm planet Earth, and I have two legs, and I live in San Anselmo. And but does that get to the essence of who we are? Can we get to the essence of who we are through our thoughts and our concepts? Or can we, can we reach that through an experiential understanding? Can we touch that through our experience? <coughs> so as Rilke said, when we, the, one of the point of inquiry is really in the question itself that we're not necessarily looking for an answer, we're asking the question really as a means to help us to explore. So when we ask the question, who am I? We're not necessarily looking for an answer, we're using the question as a way to turn the mind to look more deeply. Because often any answer is somewhat limited. When we come up with the answer, we think we know. And then when we think we know, we lose that freshness with the experience. If I say to you, do you know what an oak tree is? And you say yes, and we stay stuck on the concept of oak tree, and actually um, that potentially limits our experience of the oak tree. And somebody says, oh, I saw a great sunset yesterday. It's like, oh yeah, I've seen sunsets, you know, what the hell, or whatever. 
a great tree or a great experience. Um, as soon as we think we know something, we somewhat deaden it. So maybe I'm, I have lots more to say, but maybe we should, we'll do a little exercise here. So I want people to get into pairs, to so just turn to whoever is near you. So one partner touch the other on the knee, and whoever does the touching is partner A. I'll just work it out. Someone's partner A and someone's partner B. <laughs> but you need to be in pairs. Who, who doesn't have a pair? Anybody else? Anybody else not have a pair? Okay. So partner A is going to be asking the question, and it's the same question, and the question is, who are you? And that could be a one-word answer, could be a long sentence. When the person's finished answering, partner A says, who are you? Partner B answers. Thank you. Partner A says, who are you? So we'll just, it's a, it's a repeating question exercise. And just allow whatever to arise to arise. There's no, there's no right answer. There's no doing it right. This is just an exploration into this question, who are you? It's not about how wise you are or you know, coming up with the, the deepest answer. It's just what, and what is true in this moment. What, what is the experience of myself in this moment? So who are you? Any questions? So partner A is just answering, just asking the question and listening. Partner B is just responding. And keep the inquiry as much as you can away from becoming a mental exercise and just really staying centered in your body and just really, you know, when you ask yourself deeply a question, just allowing it to come from some depth. So, partner A, begin. So I want to talk a little more and then break up into other exercises. Um, what I want us to do in, in, the, in the exercise to come are sort of 
really practicing uh, vipassana practice. Um, it is optional. <laughs> Pract- <laughs> practicing uh, the kind of lens of vipassana that we use, this lens of mindfulness, this lens of inquiry into our experience, but doing it actually in uh, with another present to that process. So we're going to articulate kind of what we would normally do silently. I just want to say a few more things. When we bring our attention into our experience, since we're so conditioned to uh, use our rational faculties more than any other faculty, more than our sensing faculty, um, Vipassana practice is often a retraining or reorientation that moves away from um, thinking about things and working stuff out with our head to actually coming into more direct contact with experience and allowing that to inform the wisdom. So it's quite a, uh, it's a subtle shift in, in approach to experience. So when we're sitting and we experience pain, for instance, which we do from time to time, or for some of us more chronically, we're moving from thinking about the pain or thinking about the concept of pain or the concept of knee or the concept of me having pain or the concept of my knee pain or the thinking of, oh my God, what's going to happen if I don't move out of this meditation posture, I'm going to you know, fall over. Um, we're moving from that rational to more, what, well, what does it feel like? What does that feel like as an experience? What does it feel like to notice the sensations of knee pain, the sensations of back pain? So the actual concept of pain drops away, the concept of knee drops away, the concept of my body drops away, and it's just this tingling, vibratory, heat, flux, movement that's sort of indefinable. We sort of stick words on it, like stabbing and piercing and burning and excruciating and but they're really just labels that are sort of, you know, when we close our eyes and you think of, and you feel the leg, it doesn't look like this long limb, does it? It sort of feels like a bunch of touch point sensations in space. The same when we pay attention to what's happening to us emotionally. Instead of thinking about our emotions, say, instead of thinking about being angry, or why we're angry, or who made us angry, or what you're going to do to get them back, we pay attention to what it feels like in the body. How do we know we're angry? It's a really good question. When, whenever, you, whenever something arises like, I'm angry, or I'm sad, or I'm happy, or I'm peaceful, ask yourself, how do I know that that is true? How do I know that? What informs me that I'm angry? What informs me that I'm joyful? So that question takes you back, well, what is it in my body that tells me I'm happy? Oh, or maybe it's a sense of, I feel expanded and light, and my mind feels buoyant and peaceful. And when I'm angry, I feel contracted and heavy and hot and sticky. And So we're dropping below the level of concept to what actually is happening in our experience. When we do that, we come closer to the true nature of experience. 
when we're exploring or attempting to understand some of the Buddhist teaching on impermanence, on unsatisfactoriness, on the futility of grasping or trying to hold on to anything, we don't deepen our insight through thinking about it, we deepen our insight through the direct visceral experience. When we're very intimate with our experience, particularly the physical experience, it's very easy to see change, to really experience the truth of change. And we all know conceptually what change is, but when we experience it directly, it has a much deeper impact. When we're feeling the force of our desire, our longing, our grasping, and we're actually feeling it rather than thinking about it, or thinking about the object of our desire, it informs us in a, in a much deeper way. We feel first the, the actual unpleasantness of the grasping, that actually no matter how juicy the object it is that we're after, if we're grasping it, we're feeling it's unpleasant, because it, grasping is longing, is separation, is sense of emptiness. But we can't know that until we really feel it. Similarly with, uh, say, that our work with our minds and our judging minds, or our self-critical minds. Most of us carry a strong critic. When I work with people individually, I ask people to feel the impact of that, rather than just stay in the concept of whether you believe the judgment or don't believe the judgment, or um, whether you identify with the judgment, or whether you're in resistance or fighting it. Feel it, feel what the impact is like of that judgment. That allows, that informs us much more than just staying on the concept, on the level of thought. And lastly, well, I could go on actually, um, maybe not lastly. Um, you know, the, the, the teaching of dependent arising in, in Buddhism. Uh, the te- teaching that everything is conditioned, everything is impermanent because everything arises due to conditions. Everything in the conditions are always changing. It's kind of an interesting concept until we start experiencing it. Until we start experiencing, well, why do I get so reactive? I get so reactive because I'm reacting to an unpleasant feeling. Why am I longing for something? Oh, I'm longing because I'm actually grasping after some pleasant state, some pleasant state of mind. But until I start to really pay attention to the flow of conditions from a, from a sense contact, say the sound of a bell, to the sound of perhaps it's an unpleasant sound, say somebody's jackhammering outside, we feel a sense of unpleasantness, and then there's a reactivity in, in, the, in anger and, and resistance. When we feel that experientially in the body, then we really understand how things are causal in that way, much more so than if it's just an intellectual understanding. So we're going to break up into another exercise. This one perhaps is a little easier. That one actually was, I started the hard, did the hardest one first. <laughs> Three went at the deep end. So uh, again, get into pairs, either the same pairs or different pairs. Um, so get into your pairs, your dyads.
So and decide who partner A and who partner B is. And partner A is going to be the one who is talking. Partner B is listening. Partner A, uh, I want partner A to close their eyes. And actually, just actually open your eyes. Look at me for a second, because I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to demonstrate it. Um, you're basically just going to be tracking your, ex your felt experience, the bodily felt sense experience. Actually, the, the, the experiences of all six senses as they arise and pass, just like they would when you're sitting. And instead of just noticing them, I want you to articulate just what's happening to your partner. So it could be as a one-word statement. So I could, I, so if I'm doing this, I'm the subject. If I was answering it, if I was using just one word to describe my experience, I would just describe which sense is happening, what, what sense door I'm aware of, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And the touching can cover all the physical sensations, the sensations of breath. So as I sit here, I notice seeing, and I'm just going to Describe how my awareness moves to the different senses naturally. I'm not, I'm not moving my awareness, I'm just articulating what I'm most aware of in the moment. Seeing, touching, seeing, heat, touching, hearing, seeing, touching, heat, tingling, touching, seeing, pressure. So just giving um, voice to what I'm noticing. And as you notice, I'm not, I'm not trying to describe or get caught up in my thoughts about the experience, but I'm just trying to be very bare bones describing what's happening. Is there any questions about that? Okay. So we'll do that. Yes. It's better if the part, the person who's, well, whatever allows you to stay very centered. So for most people, that's eyes closed, and that allows us to track our senses more easily. And partner, the partner who's listening can have their eyes open, just giving full attention. So we'll do that for a few minutes, and then I'll ring the bell, and we'll switch.